Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Since a coronavirus vaccine is likely more than a year away, some researchers are looking elsewhere. The most sensible thing to do when you're dealing with a pandemic like this is to try and take what you already have on the shelf and see if it works. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. A lab in Boston searches among existing drugs for a treatment. And the Trump administration is overhauling a rule that cut mercury emissions drastically. Those emissions could rise again. For the weight of evidence of the science, it does not make any sense to change this rule. Plus, Yiddish, once spoken by millions of Jewish people across the world, is declining. One woman's fight to save it. Are we the lost generation to, to speak as we speak here? It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, 10 public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. In New England right now, states have reported more than 4,000 deaths attributed to COVID-19. And experts say creating a new drug to treat the virus could take years. So there's a lot of focus now on finding a shortcut to a therapy by repurposing existing drugs. President Trump put this idea in the spotlight by suggesting drugs people could try. There is actual science being done to do just that. WGBH's Liz Nieslas takes us inside a Boston lab that's looking for solutions. Boston University's National Emerging Infectious Disease Laboratories, also known by its acronym NEEDLE, is housed in a high-security building in Boston's South End. Outside, perimeter fencing and heavy barriers, the kind that protect U.S. embassies. Inside, an elaborate system of air filtration. Labs here are designed for research on the world's deadliest pathogens. Once the subject of lawsuits by neighbors who feared an escape of those pathogens, it's now where a hunt is underway to find a treatment for COVID-19. Microbiologist Robert Davey leads a team practiced at working on deadly viruses like Ebola. Clad head to toe like astronauts, they move easily in their positive pressure biocontainment suits meant to seal out any viruses. Though work with the novel coronavirus doesn't demand this level of precaution, Davy says this lab quickly pivoted to put its specialty to use, pitting existing drugs against a virus. The most sensible thing to do when you're dealing with a pandemic like this is to try and take what you already have on the shelf and see if it works. And there's a lot on the shelf. Work's begun with a library of 6,800 FDA-approved drugs provided by Boston's Broad Institute. The Broad Institute has a repository of medicines available for research called the Drug Repurposing Hub. These are drugs of all kinds, many you might know from your own medicine cabinet. Davey says when you're on the hunt for an existing drug to treat a disease, diversity is good. Their cholesterol, their blood pressure, their diabetes, 
their uh, headache treatments, their migraine, yeah, migraine treatments, um, anything you can imagine. Davey agrees it's indeed a bit like throwing spaghetti against the wall or to use a more elegant simile. It's like finding a, a very small key to fit in a lock. And if that key fits just right into the lock, you're gumming up its works when that key goes into the lock of the virus. Um, and it can't make more viruses. Creating a drug from scratch could take a decade, but these already approved medicines, known as small molecule drugs, are relatively inexpensive and easy to produce in large quantity. Finding one drug that would knock out the virus would of course be like gold, but that's unlikely. That the key is going to be some sort of moderate fit to the keyhole. You then take those things that fit moderately well, right, that stop the virus reasonably well, and you improve them through chemistry. Depending on FDA requirements, Davy says, any successful drug could potentially move right into clinical trials with patients. Work here starts with the live virus grown from a sample taken from the first COVID-19 case recorded in the U.S. For each test, a lab plate is robotically loaded into a microscope where images are taken and then analyzed by software which can count the cells to see if a drug might be having any effect on the virus. This process may eventually screen up to 20,000 drug compounds, including the one advocated by President Trump, hydroxychloroquine. What do you have to lose? It's a drug used to treat malaria and lupus, but so far unproven for treating COVID-19 and with potentially deadly side effects. There's real risk to taking drugs like that that can tip you over and kill you. Medical ethicist Art Kaplan says people need to understand the value of scientific rigor. Methodical testing, like what's underway at the BU lab, also helps weed out those who are looking to make a quick buck. Despite being in desperate times, a lot of people would like to think, yeah, I have an agent that the world's going to take. <laughs> I'll make a fortune from it. If you don't put science first, you're going to have the risk that, uh, if you will, greed might replace evidence. And gathering evidence takes time. But in this pandemic crisis, BU's Robert Davies says he was able to get his work up and running at unprecedented speed because of the range of research institutions in Boston. You know, I'm not saying that I'm going to solve this, um, but we need many shots at goal. And there are many good groups around the country that can contribute um, to, find, to, to hopefully scoring that goal. Collaboration that will be needed in the future against other disease threats. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Liz Nieslaus. The common refrain right now is, we can't relax social distancing rules and reopen businesses unless we have enough testing. The testing capacity in New England is a mixed bag. A recent study out of Harvard University claimed that Rhode Island was the only state in the country with enough testing to reopen. And the COVID tracking project, which analyzes state-by-state -state data, has Massachusetts ranked fourth in the country for per capita testing. That's just behind New York, Louisiana, and Rhode Island. But in Maine, a lack of testing capacity has been a problem ever since the state recorded its first case. Maine Public Radio's Steve Missler joins me to talk about how the state has been hamstrung by a lack of testing capacity and what that might mean going forward. Steve, I want to begin with a clip of Maine CDC Director Dr. Nirav Shah talking about testing. One of the mantras of public health is that when you look for things, you find them. And in this situation, our team has gone out aggressively, proactively 
to look for more cases. And as a result of that, when you look for things, we find them. And that's what we're seeing now. Now, Dr. Shaw is referring to Maine's approach to testing in congregate care facilities. But let's zoom out for a minute. And overall, has Maine's approach been aggressive and proactive? So Dr. Shaw's comment the other day stood out because I think it really frames the struggle Maine and other states have had in getting a full picture of the COVID-19 outbreak. Those case updates that we get every day from the Maine CDC are just a glimpse of the actual outbreak, according to Dr. Shaw. And we don't have that full picture because we don't have and have never had a robust testing program for this virus. And I'm talking about the U.S. here, not just Maine. And there are a lot of well-documented reasons for this. The feds were slow to approve a test for COVID-19. And when it finally did, the supplies needed to complete that test were and continue to be in very short supply. Now, the consequences of that are that public health officials in Maine and other states have been hamstrung in their response to the virus because they've effectively had to ration tests by only testing people on the front lines, such as healthcare workers, people who are hospitalized or people who are working or living in long-term care facilities. Now, sure, doctors can order tests for other people, but those results are often processed at commercial labs, and the results are delayed for days, if not weeks in some instances. So while public health officials would like to be as aggressive testing as they are in long-term care facilities, they really can't be. They are, to put a twist on Dr. Shaw's quote, unable to look as hard for COVID-19 infections as they would like and unable to find them. You mentioned that Maine is still rationing tests and prioritizing people on the front lines in nursing homes and those who are hospitalized. But let's go back a second. Was was that the approach from the start? So the Maine CDC was unable to complete tests for people deemed as the top priority because they didn't have enough of a special reagent they needed. At one point, they had a backlog of more than 1,000 tests And the main CDC actually had to go and purchase another type of testing equipment to help clear that backlog. And to illustrate how desperate things were, Dr. Shaw was reluctant to disclose exactly what type of new machine the state used because he was worried other states would pursue the same strategy and make a run on the testing supplies and create another shortage. So interstate competition for testing was a problem, and so was the federal government, which still hasn't delivered on President Trump's promise for expansive testing. A couple weeks ago, it looked like more expansive testing was finally going to happen when the news broke uh, about these new rapid tests that would be available nationwide through Abbott Labs. But Maine had trouble getting access to these tests. What happened? Right. So the Maine CDC was originally told by the feds that they were going to get a shipment of these new rapid tests that could have increased state testing capacity by sixfold. But then the feds shorted that that delivery, giving Maine just a fraction of what it was originally promised. And that forced Shaw to ask Martins Point Healthcare, a local uh, provider, to donate some of its rapid tests, which it did. But Shaw also says Martins Point never even asked for the additional tests that it received. Now, what we've learned is that the feds have been diverting shipments of tests and supplies to states that are so-called hotspots, which might make sense as a short-term strategy. But it's also left states like Maine taking a defensive posture and responding to their respective outbreaks. Here's how Maine's Governor Janet Mills described the situation when I asked her about it last week. 
I've made the case several times to the president and the vice president that we also need greater testing capacity because we don't want to become a hot spot. If you give those to us now, let us acquire those now from all whatever appropriate sources, we can, we can break the curve before it becomes a surge. Connecticut's governor recently announced that his state would be ramping up testing. And as I mentioned at the top, Rhode Island and Massachusetts have decent testing capacity. Steve, we know that public health experts say high testing capacity is the key to relaxing social distancing rules and reopening businesses. Does Governor Mills see it that way? Yeah, she says it's a huge consideration. And that's because absent some miraculous vaccine or treatment for COVID-19, the virus is going to be with us for a while. And if that's true, then there's always a risk of a second wave of infections once state officials begin relaxing the restrictions you mentioned. And one of the best ways to deal with that is widespread testing, because if you have it, then you can look for more infections, find them, and then take the appropriate measures to make sure those people don't spread the disease to even more people and overwhelm our healthcare system. That's why these restrictions were put in place now. And without more testing, they could be put in place again if there's a second outbreak. And that's why governors like Mills are making the case to the federal government that more testing is the absolute bare minimum necessity if we're going to start reopening the economy and relaxing these restrictions. Without it, we could be contemplating the very same situation we currently find ourselves in, playing defense and unable to look and find as many infections as we want. Steve Missler is chief political correspondent for Maine Public Radio. Steve, thanks for sharing your reporting with us. Happy to do it. You know those rapid tests from Abbott Labs Steve and I were just talking about? Well, a recent analysis from the Cleveland Clinic calls into question the test's accuracy, saying they get more false negatives than other widely available COVID-19 tests. For some healthcare providers in New Hampshire, the pandemic has jump-started telemedicine, a move they've wanted for years. But as New Hampshire Public Radio's Annie Ropeek reports, the state's insurance system has been slow to catch up. You might think of telemedicine as a poor substitute for in-person care. Providers like Kristen Zames want you to think otherwise. Zames runs a physical therapy clinic in Stratum focused on pelvic health. She says a lot of her clients come in with pain or symptoms that they've had for decades without knowing why. And their first appointments are just conversation. You know, people come to us and don't quite understand their condition, how it's connected, what they should be doing, the modifications they should make. So there's a lot that can be done. Education, watching movement, guiding exercise. Zame says all of that can happen easily through a screen, making care more accessible and comfortable for people in their homes. She's wanted to do this more for years, and she sees a huge opportunity right now. My hope is that now that everybody's at home, that that we can make time for these appointments, and actually they're potentially more convenient. But it hasn't been easy to get started. Most of Zame's clients canceled their upcoming appointments, waiting to see what would happen with COVID-19. She laid off many of her staff so they could seek unemployment. And when it comes to insurance coverage for remote therapy, she says, the advice has been confusing, ever-changing, and hard to trust. I know how insurance companies work, and, um, you know, there's always question marks and, and wiggle room for them to deny And it doesn't have to be logical. So it's pretty scary. In the past, providers have made less for telehealth visits than in-person ones, and they haven't been allowed to provide as many services remotely. 
Now insurance companies are under a state emergency order to treat telemedicine as if it was in person. It's an attempt to keep the healthcare system functioning during social distancing. The first weeks of that order were pretty chaotic for major insurance companies in the state as they tried to update their systems. Providers and insurers say plenty of telehealth claims have been denied or underpaid, contrary to state directions. Now some companies are going through and reprocessing those, but there are still lots of kinks to work out. It means more stress for people like Lisa Minahan, who runs a speech therapy clinic with several providers in Londonderry. You don't know when your next paycheck is coming in from the insurance companies, yet every week when I run payroll, I have to pay the girls, you know. Minahan is also eager to provide more teletherapy. She says her young patients' families don't always have time for a trip to the office, and she's long thought more remote appointments could help her reach more people. But after years of waiting for insurers to cover more telehealth, the pandemic has not been an ideal starting point. When Minahan called one insurance company recently about an issue with a claim, she was faced with a four-hour wait time. I'm like, are you kidding me? So uh, for us to actually get through to any of the insurance companies to ask questions or to solve our problems or anything right now, like they are overworked and overwhelmed and it's crazy. Tyler Brannon is the director of health economics for the state insurance department. He says they did get some complaints in the first weeks of the executive order about insurance companies lagging on compliance. But I think those, those issues have been resolved now. And indeed, uh, every major insurance company operating in New Hampshire does have a very detailed set of, of billing instructions uh, to get reimbursement and coverage for services virtually. One notable exception to full compliance is Medicare. They're still limiting the services providers can offer remotely. Provider advocates say they expect that to change soon. The bigger question is, will any of this outlast COVID-19 and the forced experiment in telehealth it's created? Doctors and insurance officials will be looking to see if it saves money or improves patient outcomes. All the new telemedicine visits during the stay-at-home orders will give them plenty of new data. Providers like Kristen Zames hope the word starts to spread to patients that telehealth can help them take care of themselves, even now, and insurance will pay for it. I know my family is in financial conservation, so I know that's where everybody else is, not knowing what's going to happen. They're going to be conservative with their own self, too, so I think to have coverage right now is essential. If enough patients are willing to give remote care a try, she says, businesses like hers will survive the downturn and telehealth will keep catching on. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Annie Ropeek. I think we've probably all been wondering at this point, is there even going to be a summer? Of course, the days will get warmer. But what we really want to know is, will you still be going on that camping trip to the beach or your best friend's wedding? How are you handling this uncertainty? By plowing ahead with plans or canceling them? Leave your comment at 860-275-7595. That's 860-275-7595. Or you can email us at next at ctpublic.org. Again, that's next at ctpublic.org. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, how the federal government has changed the rules for mercury emissions and the potential impact on humans and animals. And have you thought about getting into bird watching? We have a story for you. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters. 
who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. The Trump administration has been rolling back environmental regulations and clean air initiatives put in place under Obama. Its most recent target was a rule limiting mercury pollution and other toxic chemicals from power plants. Exposure to mercury is known to cause brain damage in young children. Since 2012, when the rule went into effect, mercury pollution has dropped drastically. The current Environmental Protection Agency isn't getting rid of the mercury pollution rule, but it is going to stop taking into account some negative health effects. Celia Chen is a scientist and director of the Dartmouth Toxic Metals Superfund Research Program, and she joins us to talk about what it could mean for people and animals if mercury emissions rise again. Hi, Professor Chen. Thank you for coming on the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. These EPA rules regulate the emissions of mercury and other toxic metals through the air, but we can't actually get mercury poisoning by breathing it from these emissions, right? So how does human exposure generally happen? So human exposure is is really through the consumption of fish, sadly. Um, it is uh, actually emitted from all kinds of uh, atmospheric sources, including in the U.S. Half of our emissions are from power plants. Um, and it goes up into the atmosphere and eventually is deposited on land, watersheds, and eventually ends up in water bodies. And in the water bodies, this form of mercury that is emitted is actually transformed into methylmercury. And methylmercury is the bioavailable form, which just means that it's easily taken up by living cells. And then it's transferred up into aquatic food chains. At each level of the food chain, it increases something called biomagnification and ends up in top level fish or predatory fish that have higher concentrations of methylmercury. So that's why we hear, like, be careful when you eat tuna or swordfish. Right, exactly, because of this magnification in the food web. Where are we seeing high levels of mercury in New England? Well... Uh, my colleagues and, and fellow scientists and I many years ago spent a lot of time studying uh, lakes and streams and uh, found that in New England, our very pristine lakes up in northern Maine and in New Hampshire and throughout New England uh, had very high levels of mercury in fish. And that resulted also in exposures to various birds that actually feed predominantly on fish. For example, the uh, common loon and uh, eagles uh, all were showing signs of mercury exposure. As I mentioned at the top, the Trump administration isn't doing away with mercury regulations. They're saying they're no longer going to weigh some of the health risks that the Obama era regulations took into consideration. And that's because, according to the current head of the EPA, those calculations were, quote, dishonest. Um, what health impacts are they no longer going to consider? So the health impact that I believe they're talking about is the health impacts of particulate matter. But the particulate matter in of itself is not 
a mercury-associated impact, and it is a, a co-benefit or what is called a co-benefit. And so what they're saying is that that should not be counted. But those co-benefits of any environmental regulation have always been counted. So that is a big change. But the other aspect of this is that the actual risk assessment done in 2011, that was actually based upon now what we would consider old science. And so the actual health effects of mercury itself were underestimated at that time and have not been included in the current assessment. So much of the science, you know, this is already 10 years later, uh, has evolved to show that there's more health impact of mercury and that the um, actual exposure to mercury by people in the U.S. is much greater than was accounted for in the risk assessment. Does this move, does anything about this move by the Trump administration make sense to you as a scientist? No, not absolutely not. And if anything, I think We've all known, you know, that for many, many years now that mercury has neurotoxicological effects. We now know it is, you know, has other health effects uh, at these low-level exposures of humans. From the science, for the weight of evidence of the science, it does not make any sense to, to change this rule. And yet it's happening. And, and the current head of the EPA, who I mentioned before, his name's Andrew Wheeler, and he himself is a former coal lobbyist. And he said, quote, under this action, no more mercury will be emitted into the air than before, unquote. And that could be the case because a lot of power plants already installed the equipment that captures mercury emissions, and they could continue to use that. But a lot of environmental activists say that's probably not going to be the case. And if the head of the EPA is wrong and pollution does go up, what is that going to mean for humans and animals moving forward? Yeah, it just it will mean that the trends that we've been seeing of decline will change. They will start to increase again, you know, with whatever time lag. And particularly, I mean, there have been um, estimates of how much the children uh, who were born with prenatal methylmercury exposure that exceeded the reference dose, those number of children over this time have decreased by half. So these are actual, you know, documented changes that we have seen in the effects and exposure uh, of mercury to, to vulnerable populations. So yeah, I think there's no question that if you then start to change the amount of emissions and then you change the amount going into the environment and then you change the amount that's going into fish uh, and then human exposure, that will also, the health outcomes will also change. Celia Chen is a scientist and director of the Dartmouth Toxic Metals Superfund Research Program. Celia, thank you so much for coming on the program. You're most welcome. Thank you. It's been so much quieter outside. Last week, we talked about how that might affect birds, at least temporarily. This week, we've got something for birdwatching beginners. There's the kind of birdwatching, or birding, where people travel all over the world to see as many types of birds as possible. We can't do that right now. But producer Taylor Quimby from New Hampshire Public Radio's show Outside In says there's another type of birdwatching anybody can do. 
without any special tools or bird expertise, from the comfort of a backyard or even a kitchen window. That's the type of birding we're going to talk about today. And we've roped in a few bird lovers to give us some tips on how to do it. First up is Bridget. So, hi, my name is Bridget Butler. I live in northern Vermont, right near the Quebec border, and I'm known as the bird diva. Bridget started young. She still remembers waking up in a tent next to an apple tree on a bird-watching trip and having her first real bird experience. You know, like the one. It was spring, and there's the apple tree in blossom, and at the top of the tree is an indigo bunting. Indigo buntings are cheery, little bright blue birds with a wonderful sing-song voice that migrate at night, using the stars to guide them. And this guy is just singing his heart out. And that was my hook bird. That was the one that got me. And I was like, this is really cool. Bridget teaches classes on how to do what she calls slow birding, which, when she describes it, sounds a little bit like yoga or meditation practice. I encourage people to start right out your back door. My sit spot is literally on my back step. If you've got a backyard or a quiet outdoor spot you can safely get to, let's go there together. Here's how she likes to start bird watching. Slow your steps down. Take notice of how your body is feeling. Drop your shoulders. You see, bird watching isn't just about looking for birds. It's about opening up your senses, about bringing your mind into the present. Get comfortable. Um, take a couple of deep cleansing breaths. If you don't have a backyard, or you live in a building with a lot of other people, it's okay just to open a window and start there. Even high up, you'd be surprised what birds are out there. Did you know that the fastest bird in the world, the peregrine falcon, likes to roost and hunt in New York City? Right around the skyscrapers. Anyway, I've been trying Bridget's method in the mornings. I like to brew up some coffee, open up my kitchen window, and stick my head right out into the sunshine. Sometimes your mind might wander, a noisy car drives by, or a person who wonders why you're sticking your head out the window. Morning. Don't worry about it. Acknowledge them and, like, let them go. And then open up your senses, take a deep breath, smell. Some days, you'll notice you can hear a lot of birds, but you don't see any. Don't worry, that's normal. One of the most important birding tools you have are your ears. Bridget has a little exercise to help get them working. The other part that I like to think about is how far away can I listen? Can I listen close? Can I listen to my neighbor's house? Can I listen beyond my neighbor's house? Can I listen above me um, and in front of me? Really good birders can identify a lot of birds just by their songs and calls, and can even tell whether the bird is looking for a mate or warning other birds about nearby predators. That's not the case for beginners like me and my son. So Bridget gave us some things to listen for, a few bird call genres, so to speak. One of them is like the clear sound, like uh, chickadee. So black-capped chickadees, you, we have them in, in Vermont here, you have them where you guys are there in New Hampshire. So their mating song is, hey, sweetie, hey, sweetie. You can actually whistle that. Another category of bird call you might hear is what's called a trill. And you do that with your tongue. 
kind of choppy quality to it. And yet another category is a buzzy sort of insect sound. So if you're like some birds have all of those within their song, which is really cool. So the song may start out one way with a nice clear note and then go into something that's more buzzy toward the end. Listen to this guy, the brown thrasher. He has more than 1,000 song types and can even do covers of other bird songs. a squeak and a chirp mixed together. Let me hear. What does it sound like to you? Mm. Well, that's pretty good. Really good sound. Thanks. It's funny they call it bird watching. Yeah. Because I think a lot of it is about bird listening. Yeah, I think they should call it bird listening. If you're lucky and patient, the birds that you hear might wander into view. To get a sense of what to look for, should you actually see one, we talked to D. Drew Lanham, an ornithologist and professor at Clemson University in South Carolina. He didn't have a hookbird like Bridget. When he was a kid, Drew wanted to be a hookbird. I would go out and attempt to fly. I would construct wings of cardboard, parachutes of plastic bags, tried to float down from ladders, haystacks, and roofs with um, umbrellas. Um, Sometimes there was evidence I, I did break a collarbone. Point is, Drew admired birds. A second grade teacher, a woman by the name of Ms. Beasley, she gave us pictures of birds to color. <laughs> that started it. When observing a bird on a branch or on the ground or in the sky, it's best to think of yourself as an investigator. If this, then that. Um, If this, then that, not that. Don't jump to a conclusion about what kind of bird you're seeing. To start with, just gather clues. Is the bird larger or smaller than a crow? And of course, pay close attention to color. And not just thinking Roy G. Biv. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. But beginning to think about shades, to have fun with describing colors. Apricot, scarlet, almond, aquamarine. You're not just looking at color to identify the species. Just like an investigator, some small clues may tell you a lot more than you think. Most male birds, for instance, have brighter colors than females. The adult male summer tanager, Drew tells me, is watermelon red. The female is a mustardy yellow. Young males are a splotchy patchwork of the two. Those splotchy colors tell you that that's um, a, a male that was hatched just last year. Drew says to keep asking yourself questions about what you're seeing. Jot down the notes, maybe even draw a picture in your notebook if you can. Look at the bill. Is the bill long or is the bill short? Is it conical shaped or is it sharp? Of course, birds can be small and you might be looking from a distance. Binoculars um, can help you. Don't have a pair? 
<laughs> I'll tell you, um, you can take toilet paper tubes, which I think there are probably plenty of these days, put those tubes together, and those tubes together become binoculars. Yeah, those work great. They're super easy to make, so... Okay, so maybe a pair of toilet paper tube binoculars won't help you zoom in. But we tried them, and what they did do was help us focus our attention. I can't believe it, but these cardboard tube binoculars actually really do help. Mm-hmm. Plus, they were fun. Hey, Finn, look. There's another one. Okay, what size is he? Is he bigger or smaller than a crow? Uh, he's smaller than a crow. Darkish head. Red belly. What's his beak uh, shape? Um, like a snout point, a pointy snout. That was Taylor Quimby of New Hampshire Public Radio's show, Outside In. And the bird he and his son were looking at was an American robin. You can find the entire episode at outsideinradio.org. And if you're a beginner birder and you need some help identifying the birds you see, an app called Merlin from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology is a great place to start. After the break, practicing your faith during the pandemic. Plus, a woman dedicates her life to saving Yiddish. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. Virtual platforms have become the gathering place for many religious groups during the pandemic, but faith leaders are tweaking the experience to bring a sense of human contact. Here's New England Public Radio's Nancy Cohen. Pastor Brent Damro still leads services every Sunday in the big sanctuary of the First Congregational Church in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. It's just him and a few others standing at safe distances, including his husband, who operates the camera that streams the service via YouTube. Their six-year-old son ferries slips of paper to the pulpit with the names of congregants who have texted that they're watching. I issue a special welcome by name, and people have said... They find great joy in hearing other names be lifted. Damro also holds virtual office hours where he sits in front of his computer on an open Zoom connection available to his congregation. But he says it's not just the pastor, the person with a title, who can help people through the pain of this pandemic. We're all called to be shepherds and we're all called to care for one another. And likewise, we're all called to be sheep and bleat out when we are facing issues or struggles. Or deep despair. I don't know what to say to someone when they say, I can't get on a plane and come to my own mother's funeral. What do you say to that? That's Rabbi Neil Hirsch of Hevra of Southern Berkshire. He says while he may not have the answer, he kind of walks with people through painful decisions so they know that they're not alone. Hirsch's temple combats isolation now by using online platforms for services and classes, but only if they're interactive. And the temple holds informal gatherings like virtual coffee or a nightcap. The remarkable thing is it has been people gathering who would otherwise have no reason to get together. Different generations are gathering. People in different towns are signing on. People at different stages of their careers. Everybody's sharing about what they're 
going through, and they're making connections that they wouldn't otherwise make. Andy says people participate from out of state, New York, Texas, Florida, and North Carolina. Virtual services are drawing bigger crowds for many faith groups. A Buddhist group in East Hampton reports double the number of people attending Dharma talks or sermons. An AME Zion church in Worcester says it has had four times as many worshipers. But not every group has congregants who have what they need to connect. Either don't have Wi-Fi or don't have a computer or don't know how to use one. That's Samuel Saylor, pastor at Gardner Memorial AME Zion Church in Springfield. He uses telephone conference calling so people can at least hear Sunday services, even if they can't join online. Saylor's congregation comes from mostly middle- and low-income households. Throughout the pandemic, his church is still preparing hot meals for people in need. We feed the community that comes by for a meal. We have it ready for them at the door take home and they come and get that because they count on it. More than half of his congregants are over 70. Many of them live alone. Now he says they're alone alone. So he and others phone the elderly members a lot. Saylor says as the church pastor, he's trying to be a cheerleader and inspire people to help each other. Just trying to, you know, keep reminding our members that we have a responsibility, but we also have a God. And We can, as a community, even though we're separated right now, be touching one another in spirit and in love. Other faith groups are also emphasizing helping others. The Islamic Society of Western Massachusetts in West Springfield is delivering groceries and hand sanitizer donated by their members to the elderly and the disabled, even if they're not Muslim. Wissam Abdubaki, the imam, says when it comes to the pandemic, we're all in the same boat. You see, the virus does not say you are Muslim and you are Christian and you are Jewish. All people together are one in the boat. Abdul Baki sees COVID-19 as a kind of test from God that people seem to be passing. They pray, they change, they improve, they correct their mistakes. And I believe this pandemic made us closer and closer to the almost for God. Tara Malay, who teaches virtually now at the Insight Meditation Center of Pioneer Valley, says Buddhist core teachings like mindfulness, compassion, and loving kindness can help people get through the pandemic. As they try to cope with fear, as they try to cope with uncertainty, we are experiencing, I believe, collective grief over some of the losses and it strengthens us to face them together. Malay says another relevant Buddhist concept is that everything is impermanent, including things we have taken for granted before, like the ability to be together. Another thing that's not permanent is the COVID-19 pandemic. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nancy Cohen. A children's choir, Chorus Angelicus in Torrington, Connecticut, has been rehearsing over Zoom. And recently, they came together virtually to record a song that has special meaning to them. As artistic director Gabriel Lufval explained to Connecticut Public Radio, the song, Non Nobis Domine, is around, attributed to British Renaissance composer Thomas Tallis. Chorus Angelicus has used this song for almost 30 years, and we sing it everywhere. When we want to say grace before a meal, when we are at music camp, when we want to thank a generous donor or an organization that has made 
uh, you know, a beautiful project possible. And now it has become a virtual choir project that, again, we want to to share with everyone to send our message of love, our message of compassion, our message of let's stay strong together. Here's Chorus Angelicus singing Non Nobis Domine. No. a language that was once spoken by over 11 million Jewish people, but it's declining quickly, about 15% every decade. Even the United Nations has declared Yiddish an endangered language. In Massachusetts, only about a thousand speakers are left. But there's an unlikely pocket in Falmouth on Cape Cod where one woman has dedicated her life to saving it. Here's independent producer Theo Greenlee. Ten people are gathered in a meeting room at the Falmouth Jewish Congregation. Most are in their 70s and 80s. They're speaking a language you don't hear much on Cape Cod, Yiddish. Ellie Glenner organizes the group. She teases me not to be such a nudnik. That's Yiddish for pest. So I'd better let her tell you her age. I just celebrated my 85th birthday last week. Have you ever heard the word putz? I was married to one. For the past 30 years, Ellie's had a simple mission, to spread the Yiddish language. But lately, she's been having doubts. Are we the lost generation to, to speak as we speak here? Are we the last generation to speak as we do? In the Middle Ages, the Jews got kicked out of one country after another, and they picked up bits of language along the way. They mixed Hebrew, German, Slavic languages, and combined them into Yiddish. Jews were forced to live in walled ghettos. These little pockets of Yiddish speakers were scattered around Europe. Yiddish was almost wiped out in the Holocaust, but new pockets of speakers popped up in New York, Israel, and the neighborhood where Ellie grew up just outside of Boston. It's connection. As I age and all of my relatives are gone, the only thing that I have that I'm sure was theirs is their language. Ellie learned Yiddish from her grandmother, who fled Russia in the early 1900s. When a dog came by, she would say, Zest, zest the hint, see, see the dog. He's going to kill you. Her grandmother wasn't teaching her just the language. She was teaching her to survive by always expecting the worst. My grandmother would not allow anybody to say things were wonderful. If you said to her, Bobby, you look beautiful, or Bobby, this, and, and she'd go, 
Oh, no. So I learned nothing can be 100% good. But Yiddish doesn't just despair. It also laughs. Ellie pulls out this Yiddish phrase book. It's filled with sayings like... As mir kann lachen, mir kann leben. If you can laugh, you can live. In the 1980s, Ellie was volunteering at a Jewish senior home. Polishing ladies' fingernails. They'd joke and laugh, but she noticed one woman who never spoke. She just sat there, head bowed, eyes closed. Then one day, Ellie started singing in Yiddish. And one of the women, who I thought was mute, her lips started to move. And I walked over, and I practically put my nose on hers, and I sang. And she sang with me. And the attendant started to cry. And Ellie got it. She saw that whether speaking or singing or laughing, language could bring something from the dark back into the light. So she started working to spread Yiddish. First with a conversation group, then by teaching classes... And when she moved to the Cape in 2000, she started the Falmouth Group. But Yiddish is still declining. Ellie looks around at the faces in the group. They're like the faces of most people who still speak Yiddish. Older than 65. I came to the conclusion that we are it. Anybody have some comment? Show me another road. No. I could count on you, Al, and I knew yeah. that it would be <laughs> Every day we laugh, whether it's about something sad, something happy, it doesn't matter. Nothing can be 100%. But today, anyway, there's still people speaking Yiddish, scattered around in little pockets. You have to be strong as iron. Medrezach. One manages, actually, literally, it means one keeps spinning. Let's make it a night, which means let's call it a day. And on that note, perfect. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Theo Greenley. That piece comes to us from the Transom Story Workshop in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Thanks for tuning into the show this week. You can check out past episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WCAI, WGBH, WSHU, and the Public's Radio.